everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Compiler here with your hosts, Maddie and Serby. Everyone knows that gender and racial diversity has been a longstanding problem within the tech industry. And today we'll cover not only that, but also how automation will change the future of the workforce for everybody. We have Chelsea Barbaros here today to discuss her research on how algorithms are the major gatekeepers to tech and what an inclusive future workforce looks like. Chelsea is in the doctoral program of Media, Arts, and Sciences at MIT, where she examines the spread of algorithmic decision-making tools in the U.S. criminal legal system and works to unpack and transform mainstream narratives around criminal justice reform and data-driven decision-making. Chelsea is also currently a tech fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at Harvard Kennedy School of Government and was formerly a research scientist for the AI Ethics and Governance Initiative at the MIT Media Lab. Chelsea, great to have you with us here today. Yeah, thanks y'all for having me. So as women in tech who are early in our careers, we are really interested in hearing more about your research related to automation and its use in recruiting and workforce development, both within and outside of the tech industry. And you've written extensively about how this idea of tech being a meritocracy is basically kind of a myth. So to start us off, can you share more about this research and what you've discovered regarding the realities of recruiting and hiring? Sure. Um, thank you so much for digging up that work that is now like many years old. I mean, um, I was really rewriting and thinking about this between 2013 and 2015. And at that point in time, I think the tech sector was going through one of its first waves in this century of kind of scrutiny around how pale and male their workforce really was, especially when you looked and broke down the workforce according to kind of the higher paying jobs, the technical careers and things like that. And so um, this was a period of time in which I was doing um, some research for my master's degree and I became really interested in, in looking at the ways that um, Silicon Valley kind of responded to those criticisms around the lack of diversity uh, for their technical workforce. Um, and I was particularly interested in the ways that the tech sector would turn to its own, you know, product, its uh, technology to kind of try to um, solve that problem. Um, and so I did work um, largely um, embedded within this organization called Code 2040, which is a nonprofit which um, works to uh, really place promising talent, uh, college students um, from some minority background can, I think, I think they focus on African American or Black and Latinx college students. Um, and um, what they do is they place folks in um, college students with, uh, you know, high, high levels of technical ability, high enough to where they're um, desirable candidates for um, summer internships and things like that. And uh, Code 2040 will place them in these summer internships and do a variety of other kind of workforce kind of networking stuff. Um, so I worked with them and through that experience, uh, engaged with a number of tech companies who were trying, who were working with Code 2040 and trying to think through how they were going to approach diversifying their workforce in different ways. We, when we were watching your talk on heuristics, algorithms, and the gatekeepers of opportunity in tech, um, you had pointed out some specific heuristics, um, examples being education, network, that mm -hmm. you were able to pull out that affected who was even being evaluated early on in the hiring processes for some of these jobs in the tech industry. Um, these heuristics were being fed in um, to algorithms and finding potential 
hires. So given some of these heuristics, what are the major risks associated with utilizing them in the recruiting algorithms that tech companies have been doing now for the past few years? Sure. So, you know, um, the reality is, I think for most jobs, and certainly within the tech sector, I think it's really hard um, for people to um, figure out who is going to be a successful employee in, in um, their company. And so I think people end up relying on, um, I guess, rules of thumb based on who they've worked with in the past and who they kind of understand to be somebody who's likely to be a good fit. And given the homogeneity of the industry as it is, that uh, like that creates kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy as to like, okay, what does a typical, you know, programmer look like? Um, and the, you know, this boy, this involves, you know, some formal credentials, like, okay, especially in Silicon Valley itself, you know, if you go to one of the top kind of technical universities or you go to kind of a name brand university, um, like, you know, Stanford right in the, right around the corner, MIT, CMU, one of the Ivy leagues, Caltech, you know, um, there's a certain number of schools that have like some name brand quality uh, to them that is something that they look for. But it also is much more fuzzy kind of cultural markers as well. Um, things um, just like, you know, the standard kind of image of what a, a, a tech bro looks like um, that end up also popping into these more algorithmic or seemingly objective recruitment tools. So I talked to an, um, a few different companies who you know, basically, when this stuff started happening, you, you started to see um, a variety of different tech startups coming into the scene and trying to scrape data from a, a few different places online, whatever publicly available data that they could find. And then they tried to produce kind of prediction engines to identify people who would succeed. And so think about what kind of data you're scraping if you're scraping things like Facebook or social Twitter um, and things like that. Um, you're getting things like people's pre movie preferences as as um, as data, you know, um, and so what we ended up finding was that and for some of these machines, in fact, what they the early models that people were trying to build on data, which is supposed to be this objective thing for some reason, uh, were things that was like, ah, your CTO is likely to be somebody who likes Lord of the Rings and lists that as one of their favorite books on Facebook, um, and so I think this. Um, this tendency is something we see a lot uh, when people turn to technology and specific, I think specifically AI and algorithms, is that um, we tend to embed our, the heuristics we already use, they end up showing up in the data trails that we've left. Uh, and then people, um, there's some sort of quality around data where people think this stuff is just kind of natural or emerging in the world in some sort of way that makes it kind of objective as if it's not shaped by the world <laughs> and so but what we end up doing as a result is just kind of reinforcing the way we already think as opposed to what I think people hope they're doing which is um, you know mitigating bias um, yeah algorithms are often framed as a algorithms and data-driven decision-making tools are framed as this um, more objective accurate alternative to our subjective implicit bias decision-making processes um, and that's a silly distinction, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And like you said, um, figuring out who's going to be an, a successful employee is really a hard challenge. And now that you mention it, the idea that we would automate this is really, really sounds very ambitious. 
And I love that in your master's thesis, you also took the opportunity to look into how we can change the industry to embrace a diverse workforce in the future. And that aside from automation, maybe there is another way via organizations that are working expressly to bring in underrepresented groups of untapped talent that Silicon Valley traditionally ignores. And you touched on Code 2040 a bit earlier, but could you speak a bit about you know, their work in expanding the diversity of the tech workforce pipeline and how that might be extended to the industry as a whole? Sure, I really appreciate Code 2040 because I think at the heart of their work, they're building community. Like, I think they're really trying to build out, I guess, um, networks of support and referral uh, and new relationships between new kinds of universities and, um, and companies like Facebook. And, um, and they recognize that so much of actually our job, our prospects in the job market have to do with actually our relationships. And given that our, our society is still so deeply segregated along racial lines, it's not surprising actually that, um, you know, like so much of the networks that run Silicon Valley are just white people, <laughs> you know, like, and, um, and so what I really like about Code 2040 is I think there are a number of, um, you know, leader, black leaders in tech, black, black and Latinx leaders within tech who have also committed towards kind of building up the community, engaging in community events through Code 2040, um, and then culti like cultivating those relationships. I think those relationships are actually far more important than cultivating talent or skills. I think those, I don't think that the, at the essence of the problem with tech is a pipeline problem or a deficiency in skills. It's a deficiency in network diversity <laughs> in like a social sense. Um, and I think another really smart thing that Code 2040 did, for example, is they did start, their first cohort was a lot, um, a lot of students from, I guess, name brand universities. Um, so they had, you know, um, kids coming from Stanford um, and MIT and things like that. Um, but by the second year and going into the subsequent years, they, I think part of why they did that is I think they wanted head on from the beginning to um, challenge this notion that there are not talented students, um, like th that it's not a pipeline issue with the companies like Facebook, Microsoft, things like that. Um, and so having the name brand helps with that, I think, in the beginning in terms of establishing trust that, okay, after the first year, that, that cohort of interns is really high quality. Let's, let's allot eight spots this year instead of two or three at Facebook. You know, um, they were able to build trust so that um, I think in the subsequent years, they brought in students from really good schools, but schools that are not considered name brand. And I think it's very interesting they're not considered um, name brand because they are, um, you know, predominantly students of color, like they go to those schools. Um, just an example, there were kids from Tennessee, there were kids from Florida. So um, I think that was really smart on their part in terms of taking some kind of a limited heuristic and then trying to broaden the category. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the heuristics are definitely used in getting people into the first round and who's even being considered. And I think um, nowadays there's even uh, with the rise of technology and the demand for these technology driven skill sets, um, coupled with kind of the decline in the outcomes from receiving a college education have led a lot of people, a lot of researchers like yourself, to maybe examine what the future of work may look like. Um, you know, different skills like maybe problem solving skills, communication skills, they're being started to val be valued equally or even more so to, you know, the quote unquote coding interview. 
Could you speak a little bit about how um, the in-demand skills of the workforce are slowly going to change or even have already started to change? You know, I was thinking about that work and you know, this is one area of my work that I actually think I might uh, have a really different perspective on now, like five years later than when I wrote that stuff. Um, and what I mean by that is back at that point in time, you know, 2015 or so, um, you know, people, this question around automation in the workforce was really big, like, and it still is, but it was start, that was the first big weight, like crest that at least I was a part of where people were talking about, ah, automation, AI is coming. What does this mean for the workforce? And, and at that period in time, the question really was, okay, how do we equip the 21st century workforce with the skills they need to like survive and, and thrive? These days, I, I really don't think that the essential issues around automation in the workplace have to do with worker skills. Like, I don't know if we need education to look different or we need to change our skills training regimen um, in terms of like that being the, the biggest issue when it comes to automation. Now, because I've never worked in the tech workforce, you guys have more experience than I do. So, <laughs> so maybe you can tell me, what do you think? What are you seeing now a year into working as like the skills that um, you developing that you didn't have? or the ones that you feel like, okay, it was totally worth it to go to college for four years. I'm super curious to hear. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely start as a product manager. I almost wanna say that none of the skills I learned in my computer science classroom are actually what I'm utilizing on a day-to-day -day basis. Things like organization, really, really clear communication, understanding things like trade-off and prioritization, which is really just critical thinking skills. Those are all like, life skills. For me, I would say it's really interesting. I don't think my computer science degree, so to speak, has necessarily, uh, you know, impacted my on-the-job performance. It certainly got me the job, right? And, you know, we were just talking about this. It's like the education, the degree, the name brand of the school even potentially got me the job, but now I'm here. That's not what's moving forward. It is everything else. And so, you know, exactly like, you know, your first um, talk that I had listened to, which, you know, really got me thinking was that there's a lot more than just the computer science skills that are um, attributing to people's success and retention when they're in the workplace as well. There, there's totally different competencies. But then again, Maddie might have a different take on this, you know, being a software engineer as well. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. I definitely think about this a lot too. And I think that there are kind of like two education philosophies, if you will. Um, and there are a lot of trade-offs between these, which is basically specialization. You know, like if you go to an engineering school or business school for undergrad versus what we did, we were both at a liberal arts college and which is kind of the other side, you know, just this more generalized approach, which is the idea that, you know, you're not necessarily learning things that you will then directly apply to your job. It's more that you're just like learning how to learn and how to like be the type of person who can um, be adaptable in different situations and pick up different types of things. And I'm still, you know, ultimately more in that camp um, in terms of educational philosophy, but I think it is really interesting to see um, just in terms of like what is going to be um, more accessible and equitable for the future workforce. Like one thing, Chelsea, that you've also written about is coding boot camps. And I find that really interesting. I know a couple of people who've been through them um, myself, but just looking at those, I'm like, wow, it's kind of crazy that, you know, people are, are learning 
all of this in like 10 to 12 weeks or even just like six months. Like I can't even imagine just like condensing my computer science degree into six months. But the reality is it, they're not doing exactly the same thing. And that's totally fine. You know, it's kind of just like a different means to the same end. Um, but yeah, I am really interested to see how that will play out in the future um, in terms of like this trade-off between do you teach people st specific skills or do you kind of teach people how to teach themselves and so on and so forth. Yeah, and you know, I, I at that point in time too, I, I was really interested in this idea of kind of like, can we unbundle education in some ways and kind of, you know, come up with another way to um, have um to signal that you're you have different competencies that are not necessarily tied to a four-year degree. I think where I've ended up landing on the issue is I think more and more when people kind of talk about um, kind of this instrumentalist approach of like we are you are here to learn this skill that capitalism needs you to have so that you can produce for me. Like that whole thing um, is kind of like the neoliberalization of the university. And I don't generally think that that is a good thing. And I think the more, the more real life versions I've seen of things trying to do online education or something like that, the more it tends to look extractive. It's, it's, you know, high fees for not like, the quality necessarily or the strength the payout from the degree and it tends to be lower income lower opportunity people who are engaged in those things and so I think that's tied to the other thing is like the boot camps are really interesting and because they do seem like an interesting opportunity for a certain class of people who can work um, in who can work and thrive and have all these different various you know supports uh, that enable them to, you know, basically devote six months of their lives to like, basically learning a whole new approach to problem solving and coding and all this stuff. So, um, yeah, so I think that's the, the, the thing to look at is, you know, there's this story that we like to tell of like folks who go to these boot camps. Uh, and then there's the reality of like what most of like for-profit skill-based, very instrumentalist education looks like. Uh, and they're not really the same thing. Yeah, and I think that ties back really well to a point you made about how, um, for example, with Code 2040's work, they're trying to build a community and a network and build, you know, trusting relationships. And it's kind of the same thing with when you go to college, a lot of it is also about interaction with your peers and mentorship from pro professors and um yeah this kind of like neoliberal approach to um teaching people specific skills is kind of missing that component and as much as you know the tech industry would like to think that any problem can be automated i feel like it's it's kind of a similar issue here where it's like we're not really at that point where you can completely transition something like this to something that's just as simple as like automating the hiring process yeah, actually, jumping right off of that, Maddie, I think it kind of feeds into this idea of workforce science. You can potentially use data analytics to create um, algorithms to support your recruiting purposes. You know, in like just like you said earlier, for what can be seen as potentially a more objective way of hiring. But some of the biases they um, are reproduced into these algorithms themselves. And so what are your thoughts on how we can weigh these two possibilities and how we should regulate automation-driven hiring processes going forward? So, so tell me, I'd love to hear from you. What do you see as like the promising applications of using algorithms for hiring and recruitment? 
I think we've seen so many studies in the past where people have said things like, you know, they look at two applications that are exactly the same. They have different names and they go with the name that might be more uh, white sounding as opposed to mm -hmm. someone who might be a person of color. And that just happens because of natural human bias, right? We're looking at names and we're making judgments based off of those names. Potentially, I would think is that our algorithms automation takes the idea of this out, takes that sense of a bias out. But it also, like we have learned, depends a lot on the data that we're feeding into the algorithm as well. If we're feeding a lot of um, information about white men who've been successful in this career path as the model for who we should hire next, we're not going to be able to pull the right candidates. We're not going to be able to pull promising women, promising people of color into even the first round, um, let alone, you know, they can't even get to the interview. They can't even show off their skills to a person if they can't even get past the bot, you know? Um, so I actually have some really serious concerns about these um, automated hiring processes. And they do concern me because I think people like myself, um, are the type of people who could be pushed out of them, you know, people mm -hmm. who dedicate time to, um, you know, creating a more inclusive workforce, which I don't think the bot is going to take that into consideration uh, when, you know, my applying for my next job, all the diversity efforts I've put in, they're going to be looking at the numbers and a human maybe might not um, just look at the numbers. They may think about a different type of impact that you've had on the workplace. So yeah, that, that, that's kind of my take on regulating is that I think we need to regulate. I think we need mm. to have some decent oversight uh, over, you know, all these automated processes. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with Serbi on that. And it is really interesting because there's definitely a problem in that, like, if you look at the really big tech companies, I'm sure they get like, you know, hundreds of thousands of resumes, like all the time. And it's just like too much for them to manually process. And so I think everybody knows that there is some level of automation there. But I think that, you know, it's definitely worth their thinking about what the intention behind it is. You know, I think if you're solely thinking about um, is this person going to make a successful employee and what are the metrics you're using to evaluate that? Um, yeah, it's really easy to step into problematic territory because first of all, like what does your workforce look like right now when you're likely basing all of those heuristics off of that? And the other thing I was going to say is that, yeah, now that we're discussing this further, you know, I, I do definitely have concerns about the whole automation thing just because I'm thinking about how, um, yeah, just like as a woman in tech, I think that definitely the things that have been helpful to me were, were not, you know, automated systems of any sort. It was really just like a bunch of um, diversity initiatives and clubs run by women in tech on campus and so on and so forth. They were really um, kind of just the things that gave me opportunity. And build that community. You know, I think community building is so important uh, in these spaces. But thank you guys so much for just sharing that, though, because those are all just like really thoughtful uh, comments and got my brain going like I do agree with Serbi in terms of like you know I do think the bias issue and the the it's not even a risk now it's just like a fact of the matter we know that these data-driven decision-making systems uh, are going to replicate the biases of the past the processes that made the data right <laughs> and it, it would be crazy for us to think otherwise um, and so the real danger with them is their branding as these objective tools. Um, so I think that, you know, there's some great work that has gone into kind of 
um, developing methods for auditing these different algorithms and checking them for uh, various types of biases across, you know, race, gender, um, and so on and so forth. And I think that work is um, important. I also don't think that that's the end of the story. And I think, you know, I think one of the biggest or most enlightening things that kind of came out of my field work as I was doing this was realizing that like at the heart of the issue, I think for workers, like people thinking about how automation is going to impact their prospects in the job market is really at the end of the day, thinking about how these data systems um, actually in, reinforce information asymmetries. Like, it's the workforce, it's the workers who are being constantly processed and evaluated. All of these data systems work for the companies. They don't work usually for the workers. So like there aren't, you know, systems for workers. I guess there are, there's things like Glassdoor and stuff like that where workers can share information about their experiences working at the different companies. But those systems look a little different. They're not like these like you know, automated prediction making machines, um, profiling machines. So, um, and I think that that has real consequences that like these asymmetries and how they play out in terms of, you know, uh, our ability to bargain for living wages and things like that. Um, and I think that's at the core of the big fight we have to think about is like, how, it, how are these algorithmic systems and AI being used by companies to, um, to gain more leverage and undermine our the workers' ability to actually like uh, bargain for a fair wage. Yeah, for sure. And you just brought up this really good um, issue of just transparency with what's being used in terms of automation, and that definitely extends far beyond you know just the hiring process within the tech industry to pretty much everything now. I think there's kind of been. Um, within only the past few years, just like kind of a wake up call to how data is being used, how people's personal data is being used and what data privacy means and what that looks like. Um, and, you know, I'm kind of curious as a final note to hear your thoughts on how we can kind of make sure that AI systems are built and used in ways that upholds, you know, principles of like fairness, accountability and transparency. And um, yeah, kind of just your thoughts on the state of legislation or the lack thereof. And I think that, you know, a lot of people are now realizing that um, the government was kind of unprepared for the rise of big tech. Yeah, I mean, so a lot of my work these days is um, kind of studying the rise and evolution of this conversation around what does it mean to ethically in build technologies that are going meant to be embedded in very broken systems um, and how do we think about ethical design of these things um, there was an early set of ideas around that that i think are now being um complicated more and and, and kind of moved beyond so there were lots of early ideas around you know um this idea that um what we're really going after is, you know, to try to minimize bias in these tools as much as possible. Um, and there was much less conversation about some of these things I've been talking about in terms of beyond bias, how do these tools reinforce discriminatory practices? How do they reinforce um, power asymmetries that don't serve the working class? And so, um, 
I think computer scientists um, within both within the academy and in the tech workforce are starting to think about these things in much more like holistic ways, ways that just aren't just about, okay, let's develop like a basically another algorithm to mat and to measure some sort of mathematical definition of fairness, um, which is where we started. And is much more thinking about, okay, how do we collectively and as individuals start to refuse to engage in systems that are causing violence and harm in the world? And how do we collectively use our power, our, our power as the builders of these things to say no to these giant monopoly monstrous organizations that have emerged from, you know, the internet. Um, and so I think that work is really, really fascinating. And I'm inspired by the tech workers who are organizing across all the major companies right now and, and trying to think about, okay, how do we from the inside kind of um, start to um, disrupt, you know, a lot of these insidious and harmful partnerships that form between tech companies and the military or the police or, um, enable, you know, surveillance in our classrooms and things like that. And then on the academic side, also, I think that um, uh, people were in kind of the areas where I, I work are trying to figure out how do we come up with richer concepts for thinking about justice beyond just like accuracy and bias. Um, and I think what that requires is a much deeper conversation around power and the way that technology serves the interests of power. Well, we're definitely thankful to have researchers like you because a lot of the conversations are only starting because researchers are the ones that are bringing it up, that are, um, you know, doing the work to figure out, hey, what's wrong or why are these issues uh, popping up over and over again? And I think um, we owe it to academics like yourself for instigating a lot of the changes that we are seeing and the changes we will hopefully be seeing as well, because as we all know, there is plenty of work to be done in the tech industry. Um, but Chelsea, we're so, so thankful that you took the time today um, to share your research with us and chat with us. Um, so thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Compile Her. Thanks to you guys. I really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Compile Her. Make sure to check out the rest of our season two on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And of course, follow us on Instagram at Compile Her. Thank you.